Welcome back again for this week's episode of the Practical Parsha podcast. This is Rabbi Shlomo Kohn. I hope you are well. It's been a busy week here at the synagogue. Hanukkah is always a busy time of year for rabbis. We had a beautiful Hanukkah party last night. And tonight is the last night of Hanukkah. A lot of family time, a lot of latkes and donuts. Don't worry, not too much. But I wanted to make sure that we didn't miss this week's episode of the Practical Parsha podcast. So I'm here tonight to share some thoughts, to give over some ideas on the Parsha. I hope you enjoy. And as always, if you have any thoughts for me, you want to say hello, you want to introduce yourself, tell me how you enjoy this podcast, please send me an email, rabbishlomokon, K-O-H-N, at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. This week's Parsha is Parsha's Miketz. Now, the last few weeks are really a connection. We're all talking about the story of Yosef. But in this week's Parsha, really the, the climax of Yosef happens. After being in prison... For many years, Paro has a dream. And nobody in the land of Egypt is able to interpret his dreams. He sees in two different dreams. The first one, seven fat cows come up from the Nile. And then after that, seven skinny cows. The seven skinny cows devour the seven fat cows and they still look skinny. He has another dream. Seven big healthy stalks of wheat come out and then seven very sickly stalks of wheat and the the not good looking stalks of wheat absorb the big healthy looking stalks of wheat and they still look the same they don't look any better than before and no matter who he asked in the land of Egypt Paro does not get a good explanation for his dreams finally the bearer of the cup whom Yosef interpreted his dream correctly while he was in prison, tells Paro about his experience and encounter that he had with Yosef. Paro calls Yosef out of prison and asks him if he's able to interpret the dream. Yosef tells Paro that the seven fat cows and the seven beautiful sheaves of wheat represent the seven years of plenty that will come to the land of Egypt. And the subsequent Seven skinny cows represent the seven years of famine that will come after the scent of seven years of plenty. And he tells Paro that the fact that the skinny cows ate the fat cows and they still are still sickly looking is signifying that the seven years of famine will be so bad that it will forget the seven years of plenty. It won't even be remembered. And Yosef goes on to give a suggestion to Paro. He tells him to enact legislation now to store up, to preserve, to take all the surplus during the years of plenty and store it for the years of the famine. Paro likes this idea, and he likes it so much that he chooses Yosef to be the one to implement this plan. So Yosef, in this week's Parsha, goes from sitting in prison not knowing what his future will be, to being the second in command of Egypt, the, vo- 
the viceroy of the land of Mitzrayim. And the Parsha tells us how Yosef marries, has children, the years of plenty come, and Yosef plans for the years of famine. The famine strikes Egypt, and really the whole world is struck with a famine. Yaakov and his family are forced to go down to Mitzrayim because they hear that there's food in the land of Egypt. Yaakov, Jacob, sends his sons, not including Benjamin, Benjamin, to the land of Mitzrayim to acquire provisions. The Parsha describes the back and forth of the encounter between Yosef and his brothers who do not recognize him, who do not know who he is. And Yosef frames them by, at first, by accusing them of being spies and then getting them to bring down the other brother, Binyamin, back down to Mitzrayim. And his goal here in this week's Parsha is to see if the brothers have repented, have done teshuva for their past misdeed of selling Yosef, of selling him. Do they still have hatred for Yosef, for Binyamin, the children of Rachel? Or have they recognized and regretted their past deeds? And the Parsha leaves us really at a climax. After framing his brother Binyamin that he stole, he wants to see, will the brothers stick up for him? And that's where the Parsha leaves us. With Yehuda, Judah, approaching Yosef to beg not to keep Binyamin as a slave. The first idea I want to share with you today really takes us to last week's Parsha and the beginning of this week's Parsha. The last verse of last week's Parsha tells us how the cupbearer, the royal cupbearer, whom Yosef interpreted a dream for, for, forgot about him. That Yosef asked him, please make mention of me to the king. Don't forget about me. Tell him that I'm here sitting in prison. Maybe you can get me out of here. And the Torah tells us that he forgot about him that he didn't remember Yosef, and he forgot. And this week, the Parsha begins, It happened at the end of two years, to the day, Paro was dreaming that, behold, he was st- standing over the river. The commentaries tell us that the two days to the year that the Torah is referring to is the two years exactly that Yosef had interpreted the dream of the cupbearer, the royal cupbearer. That from that point in time, from that day that he had interpreted the dream, that he would be raised up and put back in the position of a royal minister, of the person in charge of all the wine of Paro. Two years exactly to that day, Paro had a dream, and Yosef was called out of prison subsequently to interpret that dream. Now, how does it connect to last week's parsha, and what are we? What's the lesson that we're trying to bring out? If you look back at last week's parsha, and you go to this week's parsha, the beginning, Yosef was in prison for twelve years, and the commentaries tell us that he spent an extra two years in prison because he was punished for relying on the cupbearer. That when he gave that interpretation to the minister of who was in charge of all the drinks of Paro, the royal cupbearer, right? The royal butler. He put his faith into the royal butler and he didn't put his faith into Hashem. 
And because of that, he was punished and stayed an extra two years in prison. Now, the obvious question that's asked is that we know that a person is not supposed to rely on miracles. And in fact, this is what it states in the Talmud and Pesachim, that a person is not supposed to do that. A person is not supposed to put himself in a situation that he's going to rely on, on a nace, on a miracle. And in fact, the Talmud brings on different stories where different sages were criticized for being put in a situation where a miracle had to happen for them to be saved. So the question is, is that what did Yosef do wrong? He had a opportunity here. There was somebody, who, there was an important government minister whom he helped out, who was able to interpret the dream. So now, after he interpreted the dream correctly and he was about to go back to his position as a government minister, he would have some sway to the ear of Paro. He would be able to convince Paro to maybe let Yosef go free. So what did Yosef do wrong? Why was Yosef punished for asking this minister, this cupbearer, to put in a good word for him. Why was he held accountable for that? Now, there are many answers that deal with this question, but I want to focus on one today, which really brings out a very important point. Rabbi Tversky brings down in his commentary on the Torah that it's related that the Baal Shem Tov, Rabbi Yisrael Meir Baal Shem, on one Friday afternoon, he knocked on someone's door. And right after he knocked on someone's door, he left. He started walking down the block. The person who lived there heard the knock, quickly went outside and saw no one was there. But yet he saw a person scurrying down the block away from his house. He quickly ran after the Baal Shem Tov and asked him, he said, Rebbe, were you the one who knocked on my door? And the Baal Shem Tov said, yes. But why did you knock on my door and walk away? So the Baal Shem Tov told him, that today is Friday. And I don't have my provisions for Shabbos. I don't have what I need for Shabbos. And the Torah tells us that we have to do our part. We have to do hishtadlos. We have to do our due diligence. So therefore, I felt it necessary to knock on your door. But at the same time, it's not necessarily that you are going to be the one that God has determined to be the vehicle to be the person who will help me get that provision. I was just doing my part. How my needs for Shabbos will come to me can come from any other way. And on the same vein, there's a similar Hasidic story where someone once came to a great Rebbe and he was asked for a bracha, a blessing. He told the Rebbe, please give me a blessing that I shall have sustenance. And the Rebbe told the petitioner, said, go and buy yourself a lotto ticket. The person did that. He buys a lotto ticket. But when it came to the winning numbers, he lost. He didn't win the, the lottery, the sweepstakes. He was deeply upset that his blessing wasn't fulfilled. So this Hasidic Rebbe went to another tzaddik to tell him what had transpired. And this tzaddik told this Hasidic Rebbe who gave this blessing that he felt maybe didn't work. He said, you know, I gave a blessing and it didn't work. What was the blessing? That he should go by, the, he should win the next lotto ticket. 
And the tzaddik told the Rebbe, he says, why did you do that? You, you should have gave a blessing that this person should prosper. I mean, who says that the way that this person's salvation shall come is through a lotto ticket? Why are you limiting it to just that way? Maybe it's going to come through some, through some other way. Now, with this in mind, going back to Yosef, Yosef is lauded, we praise him for his trust in Hashem, for his trust in God. He lived on a very high level with Hashem. And as you can imagine, he was sold into slavery, and he he, he went through so many travails in his life and always would, was steadfast in his belief in Hashem, his trust in Hashem, bitachon, that everything was going to work out for the best, everything was for a reason, and Hashem has his master plan. So therefore, when Yosef asked the royal cupbearer, the royal butler, to remember him, and it seems that he put his trust too much for a person on his level, on the salvation coming through the, his connection to the royal butler, to the royal cupbearer. He didn't leave it to Hashem. Sure, he was correct in asking him to remember him, that, he should, that the royal butler should remember him by power, should mention him to try to help him get out of prison. But he, for a person on his level, he put all his salvation in him and not in Hashem and not in God. Now, the lesson that we can take out of this is obviously it's important to do our hishtadlus, to do our due diligence. In different areas in life, this can manifest itself. We have to do our part, right? We can't just uh, sit back and expect that, you know, we should have all our needs taken care of. We have to do what we need to do. We have to go out, try to get a job. We have to work. And, you know, the way that we see success, even though we do hishtadlus, we do due diligence in one area, and we're thinking that our success is going to come from the work that we put in, we have to realize that we just have to do the action of hishtadlus. And the way that God determines where our salvation or where our success comes from can be from a totally different avenue, and we have to remember that. So it's like, in a way, when we do our shtadlis, when we go to work, or we put in an effort to find a new job, to find our marriage partner, to find a shidduch, I don't know, whatever we're trying to have success in, and it's incumbent upon us to do those actions, to do something, we have to remember that the actions we're doing, we have to do them, it's important. It's important for us to do those actions. But at the same time, we have to realize that that might not be the vehicle to our salvation. That might not be the the place where God gives us a success. It might come through some other channel, some other way. And it's sort of like we're just acting it out. We're just going through the motions that are required upon us to do. And Hashem will send the blessing, send the salvation, send the success in the, in the way that He desires. So that's a very important message that we learn out from Yosef. Seems that he put too much focus on the royal butler, and he should have kept that focus on Hashem. And for us as well, when we when we do our our part, when we put in that effort to try to get to a goal, so whether it be spiritual, physical, emotional, financial, I don't know, whatever it is, you plug in plug in the blank. We have to do our part. We have to put in the effort. But we have to have the recognition that Hashem will send that salvation in the way that He chooses to send it. 
and we're just going through the motions. The second thought I want to share with you today takes us in the Parsha to when the brothers finally meet Yosef. So as I mentioned before, the brothers come down to Egypt, Yosef recognizes them and brings them to his palace, accusing them of being spies. Now the Torah tells us that when the brothers came, they didn't recognize Yosef. And the commentaries say that since it had been so many years since Yosef had been gone, they didn't recognize him. He was 17 when he was sold, and now he was 30 years old with a full-grown beard. The Torah says, Vayaker Yosef Ezochiv, Veheim Lohikiruhu. Yosef recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Now, if you think about this story for a minute, the Torah goes on in this week's parsha and, and in next week's parsha. There's a lot of interesting things that happen that would sort of make you think that the brothers should have recognized that this man was Yosef. Firstly, it's brought down that when the brothers went to Mitzrayim, they started searching for Yosef. They knew he was in Egypt. Secondly, they knew about the dreams of Yosef, that Yosef told them in the dreams, in a prophecy, that they would bow down to him. Thirdly, the chain of events that happens in Mitzrayim sort of should have, the brothers should have recognized that this man was Yosef. He knew their names. He knew who they were born from, which mothers, their age. And even it's brought down when Shimon is imprisoned, um, Menashe, the son of Yosef, is the only one that's able to subdue Shimon. And Shimon himself says that a person who's able to subdue me, who's able to hit me like that, to subdue me, must be from our family. But yet at the same time, it never crossed their mind that this was Yosef. And the, the question is even compounded in next week's Parsha because the Yosef reveals himself to his brothers, but the Midrash tells us that before he revealed himself to his brothers, he tried to get them, for them to recognize that this is Yosef, and they didn't. They weren't able to get the cues. And the question which begs to be asked is that why didn't the brothers see the signs that this was their brother Yosef, whom they had sold and was now in Egypt. How come they didn't recognize him? All the telltale signs were there. And, you know, thinking about it for a moment, even if Yosef had the beard, it's brought down that he looked similar to Yaakov. He looked similar to Jacob. And Jacob probably had a beard as well. So all these different factors really have us asking this question, that the brothers should have recognized this was Yosef the whole time. How come they didn't? Now, before I say this answer, I just want to put a a little disclaimer here that when we talk about the 12 tribes, the brothers who sold Yosef, we're talking about great people, prophets, the leaders of the Jewish people. And when they sold Yosef, they made a calculation that they thought they were doing the right thing. Sure, they erred, But when we talk about great people, we have to put it in perspective that when we talk about the Shvatim, the 12 tribes and the brothers, we're talking about people that we can't even imagine how great they were. So that's the first thing I want to say. So with that said, Rabbi Tursky brings down, he says that the reason, possibly why, that the brothers didn't recognize Yosef 
was that they were in a denial. That because of their hatred for Yosef, which was in them from that previous time, and that they couldn't come around to the fact that maybe what Yosef was saying was correct, and maybe they were wrong, they couldn't process the fact that this could be Yosef. It didn't even enter their mindset. It, they were just not able to see it. So it comes out that the defense mechanism of denial blinded them from seeing this reality of Yosef in front of them. And we know that there's a prohibition in the Torah of a judge accepting a bribe. And the commentaries tell us that even if a person takes a gift from a, a, a defendant, in some way that's maybe not construed as bribery, it has a, an effect on the person, has an effect on the judge that just the fact that it came into his pocket is going to render the judgment unfair. So if bribery can sort of sway someone's opinion, all the more so can denial blind someone to something that's right in front of them. And really, this is very important for us. I think we could all relate to this idea uh, on a personal level, and in the society that we live in. You know, unfortunately, I think we're living in a time where things can seem so clear, but yet at the same time, it's so hard to see the truth. You know, people have beliefs, they have ideas that seem to go contrary to what normal human beings would think. And sometimes you have to think to yourself, are they in denial? You know, even when we live in a time where videos, there's video and there's video evidence of things, people will still deny reality. And us on a personal level as well. You know, has there ever been a situation where we just don't want to be wrong? We can't, I guess, fess up to maybe something we didn't correct and we don't want to be in the wrong side of something. So therefore, we'll just push our opinion to not even let the other side in. So the, the lesson we can learn here from the brothers and from the story of Yosef is that we should make sure that we have this awareness to not be in denial. It's okay to be wrong. It's okay to make a mistake. We're all human beings. We make mistakes. And the best way to ensure that we don't get into a situation where we're willfully blinding ourselves to this denial mechanism is by making sure we have a good friend or a good mentor. I have a rabbi who always said that good rabbis tell you things you don't want to hear. That doesn't mean your rabbi is telling things you don't want to hear all the time, but that means is somebody who's truly an objective mentor will sometimes tell you things that need to be said. And the same thing for a friend as well. Sometimes a good friend needs to tell another friend things that you don't want to hear. And if we have that ability, if we have that, those people around us, so then we're less likely to get ourselves into a position where we're, gonna, where we're denying reality, where we're blinding ourselves to something that's right in front of our face. So with that, I'm going to finish for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed. If you have any questions, comments, or would like to reach out, please feel free to send me an email at rabbishlamokohn, K-O-H-N, at gmail.com. Have a great day.